Where you are today, good, bad or ugly, is based on the decisions you've made and the choices you've made and the knowledge you have. Nearly there. I don't want you to be nearly there. I want you to be really there. Because the difference between nearly and really is life-changing. Are you so attached to what you're having today, to the things that you feel that you need today, that you're not willing to let them go to move to a better future? For me, every day is a school day, and uh, that didn't really start till I left school, because I didn't do so well at school. But I sit there writing notes when I hear these speakers, and when Niall was sharing his story, I was making mental notes as well, because everything that I do and everything that I have is based on continuous learning. It's based on moving forward every single day, learning new stuff, because where you are today good, bad or ugly, is based on the decisions you've made and the choices you've made and the knowledge you have. And if you want some different things, you need to learn some different things. And so every day I'm looking for what more can I learn? What else can I have? But, you know, it's great to hear people say about the wonderful things you have, the wonderful things you do. And I am blessed to have an amazing life today. But it wasn't always that way. When I was four, my dad left uh, but he didn't just left, he sold everything. We were homeless, and my mum had a choice with three other kids at the time. Uh, what was she going to do? She, she was told to put us into care, and she was told to put us into care because on her own, and she was a young mother, she wouldn't be able to look after us. They clearly didn't know my mother. Uh, and so we, uh, they said, the only place we've got is a little bungalow uh, in a hospice. So we were there with people literally dying. But do you know what? We brought light and energy to their last days because we were just kids we played anyway. Uh, and we were there for four months before we spent four years living in a caravan. Now, I talk about education. I was, I was awarded an honorary doctorate for education because of my passion for it. But the school I went to was once called a demonized depository for social waste. And that hit the headlines. We knew, as local kids, that we were social waste. Now, I got to meet the eminent Cambridge psychologist that made that statement and wrote that report when I was awarded an honorary doctorate. And I told her, never, ever, ever give people labels. Some people will own those labels. But you know what? I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the principles I've learned along the way and the hard knocks and the good things and the people that have made a difference to me. Because, you know, I then went on and I was ambitious because I always thought, you know, mum, I said, don't worry, mum, one day I'll be a millionaire, you know, who, who saw only fools and horses. And I, I I'll be like that. And, uh, and I believed it. And I was stupid enough not to know that that didn't happen to people like me. Uh, and I just went on anyway. By the age of 25, I had three businesses. Uh, I had a wonderful house and everything, but I didn't understand the importance of cash. And very quickly, uh, we went bust. It was, it was added to because I just talked my amazing wife, been together 35 years, into giving up a really good job. And then when the cash started to go, it spiraled down. We became homeless again. And, and a good friend said to me, don't worry, Mike, come and live with me and Nikki. Uh, and you can work in my business for one month, he said. Uh, and then after that month, I love you, but I don't love you that much. You're going to have to put that down as rent on somewhere. You can keep working. So for two years, we delivered pizzas on the back of mopeds. And it was a real leveler. And I started to think, well, maybe people like me just aren't supposed to be successful. Maybe it's for the kids who go to the good schools, the kids who have got richer parents. Uh, but I, I, because it was pizza business, it was 12 midday through to the evening, and I went to the library one day, 
And I saw books by people like Richard Branson and they failed and they failed and they failed. And I understood that failure was actually not the opposite of success. It seemed to be one of the key ingredients to success. And so even though we'd lost the home, I'd gone bankrupt, we de I decided to start again. Now, it's a long journey, but it is different now. Uh, and I have a very varied life. I do so many things, but every day is a full day, and I love everything I do. And that's really important. If you're doing things that you don't like, either get someone else to do those things or stop doing them. Because I truly believe if you don't love what you do, you will not be the best at what you do. And if you can't be the best at what you do, every day becomes tough. I'd rather fail at doing something I loved than be successful at doing something I hated. Because if you fail at doing something you love, all of your life, at least you die spending every day doing something that you loved. Uh, and so I feel blessed to do all the things that I do. And part of that is about change. A huge part about that is, is change. I'm also a behavioral profiler, and, and I understand that change is one of the biggest things that people don't want. They do everything to resist change. And I want to share a few things. We see this little donkey tied to that plastic chair. It could easily walk away. If you go to the circus, you'll see elephants tied to a tiny piece of string and a six-inch stake just pushed into the ground. Why don't they move? Why do they not realize they can move? Well, do you know what? When they were a tiny baby, it wasn't a six-inch stake. It was a two-meter stake or two-foot stake driven in, and it was a big chain. And they pulled, and they pulled, and they pulled, and they tried to get away. And however hard they pulled they couldn't move. Once they're broken and that chain is there, here, you could put the smallest little piece of string to the lightest chair and they will not move. Is it a reality that they are tied to where they are, that you are tied to where you are, or is it all in your head? Your belief of where you are, what you can achieve, is all in your head. And the, the monkey there reminds me of an, uh, Amazonian um, Indians. The way that they, they feed off the monkeys often, uh, the way they catch them is they get a terracotta pot, they make it attractive, they put food in there, and they make the opening just big enough for an adult monkey to get its hand in. They don't want, it, they don't want to get the baby monkeys, they want them to grow. So a baby monkey would be able to pull its hand out. But if they've put nuts in there, what happens is the adult monkey will put its hand in, it'll grab the nuts. Well, when it's made a fist, it can't pull its hand out. And they literally walk up, pull them out, and they've captured that monkey. And you think, well, as they were going towards it, why didn't the monkey let go? The monkey is so scared of losing today's food, it doesn't want to give up what it needs today, that it will stay there, and it will literally give up its life rather than give up what it's getting today. Are you so attached to what you're having today, to the things that you feel that you need today, that you're not willing to let them go to move to a better future? Literally, your grip on the past, your grip on today, is probably the biggest enemy to where you can be uh, and should be tomorrow. And, and I want to, the reason I'm presetting some of these behaviorally is to put into your head some of the reasons that you are not who you think you are. And then we're going to go into some business principles. Uh, and you can, you can Google some of these things on the internet. There's videos of it. This is flea training. They can take fleas that can jump six foot, eight foot. hope you're not too close to someone you don't know. But, but they can take fleas and they put them in the jar. They leave them there for three days. And the fleas jump up, jump up, jump up, jump up, jump up, hit the top, hit the top, hit the top, hit the top. Within three days, they stop jumping any higher than just below the top because they learn if they go any higher, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hit this barrier, if you like. After three days, they can take the lid off. And do you know what? The fleas jump, but they never jump out. 
And when they breed those fleas, what they find is that the, the, the offspring of those fleas only jump that high as well. Now, is it a reality that they can only jump that high, or is it a conditioned belief, a conditioned behavior that they, they, are taught, they believe and they are taught that that's how high we jump? When really, if they just had a different belief, they could jump 20 times that height. How high could you jump if you stopped believing the limited beliefs that people have given you? And part of it starts with the label I talked about. Some of you may have been called stupid, clumsy, lazy, chubby, short, too short, too tall, whatever it is. Don't own that label. And I love the story of Les Brown. He wrote an amazing book called Live Your Dreams. It's probably 25 years old now, 30 years old. Uh, and he was um, in school, and there was a term at the time in America called educationally retarded. And, and they gave that to kids. Literally, they let these kids believe that it was okay to say, oh, no, you're educationally retarded. Anyway, a supply teacher came in, and the supply teacher asked Les a question. And he said, sorry, miss, I'm educationally retarded. And she, she looked at him in horror, and she threw the board rubber at them and said, never, ever, ever accept someone else's label of you. You are not a label. You can be anything you want. And actually, don't even accept your own label of yourself because that has probably been formed by limiting belief. You are not a label. Disable any label that you currently attach to yourself and start towards a dream uh, by learning, by developing, by looking for the people that can help you. Uh, and, and, and when Mandy was talking about the one person who... Who's, who helped her in the crew and then how the whole crew helped her when you can get a crew of people when you can get a team that's backing you you can do anything that you probably either couldn't do on your own or you believed you couldn't do on your own um, as I was putting this together and I was thinking about Les Brown and the labeling Les Brown one of the other things he said that's always stuck with me is Stephen Covey said, start with the end in mind. It was one of his seven principles in seven habits of highly successful people. And Les Brown said, you should start with the end in mind. But the end he talked about was literally on your deathbed. And he said, what would be a good death? And it's a bit negative to be thinking about this. But he said, a good death would be lying in your deathbed and you're surrounded by all the people you love, the people that are important to you. And you can tell them you love them. And they can tell you uh, that they love you too. That's a good death. But Les Brown said, imagine the opposite of that. Instead of being surrounded by the people you love that are important to you, you're surrounded by the hopes and dreams that you never pursued. And they, they look at you and they say, I was, a, I was a dream that you had. I only came for you. I could not be brought to life by anyone else. And now that you're dying, I'm going to die with you. If you've got a thought in your head that is a hope, that is a dream, don't let that dream die with you. You owe it to that dream. You owe it to yourself to do everything in your power to progress towards that dream. And just keep on going until you get that. So I, I had a mentor. I had lots of really tough mentors. And one of them was uh, head of corporate restructuring, would charge himself out at £18,000 a day in the 90s, back when that was a lot of money. And... Uh, <laughs> He was really tough on me. I was building the business at the time. I'd helped him, so he mentored me in return. And uh, one of the things he said was, Mike, I want you to um, uh, cross an ocean. I said, Stuart, you know I'm scared of water. 
And he said, that's why I want you to cross an ocean. <laughs> you need to face your fears. And I said, yeah, but, but you know, I, I'm, the business is growing, Stuart. I, I haven't got time. He said, Mike, do as I say or get another mentor. Uh, and I said, but, but he said, get off your effing butt, Mike. He said, if you don't listen to me, what's the point of me being here? Stay broke. And he would often hit me with these, these things that would anger me because already I wasn't broke, but I wasn't where he was. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do this. So I signed up for Clip Around the World Yacht Race. So year, uh, you do two weeks, um, three days of training, then, then a couple of weeks. And on the second day of training, there was a U-shaped uh, group of us. Um, I don't have the physique for many of these things, but I'm sitting there and the guy next to me says, excuse me, what, what training do we get exactly? And they said, we do the first day of training in the classroom, the second day of training, we find the biggest storm we can get and we go out uh, and we show you what it's like. And the guy laughed awkwardly and I looked terrified. Uh, and he said, no, I'm serious. We can't prepare you on calm waters. We can't prepare you on calm waters. If you want it easy, if you don't want to have the, the challenges then you probably aren't going to have the wherewithal to get to where the, the massive dreams that other people won't have. So I said, okay, we'll do this. Second week of training, we were out in a Force 9 gale um, at 2 a.m. in the morning. Lobster pot got caught in the rudder. The steering cable broke. We crashed, jibed. One lady broke her arm. Another guy got his teeth knocked out. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm going to die. I haven't even done the race yet. And I looked back at the skipper, a guy called Rich Gold, 28. He'd already been around the world once. And he's on the helm. He's holding on like this and he's smoking a roll-up. <laughs> and I, I, what the hell? And he just calmly as anything says, mayday, 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 we have 22 souls on board and no ability to steer. And um, I didn't hear, but I heard afterwards he, he, that they said to him, is anyone's life at risk? And he said, no, we've got a couple of injuries, but no one's life at risk. And they said, we're not going to put any more at risk either. You need to bob around. We'll come and get you in the morning. So we spent the whole night bobbing around. But Doing that race, I'd come back and then Stuart would say, how was it, Mike? I had a few words to say to him. But then, then I, he would say, what did you learn from that? I'd say, well, sometimes I always used to think I had to steer from the front. I had to lead from the front. But I learned from that that actually I could lead from the rear. Because the skipper on a boat is right at the very back. By being at the very back, he or she can see every person on that boat. They can see the wind at the top of the mast, the, the I didn't even know the name of the thing, but I did do 6,000 miles in six weeks at sea. But you can see which way the wind's going. You can see the sails. You can see every person. You can see they're safe. If you are at the front believing that's the only place that you can be, you're not going to see anything that goes on behind you. Literally, there could be a man overboard. So this stupid belief that people have that I'm not going to do, expect my staff to do anything I'm not doing and so on, it's great to do it occasionally but don't get so caught up at the front that you lose the ability to see the whole business, the whole team, and where you're going. So I got back, and I thought that was great, and he said, right, I want you to climb a mountain next. I said, oh, Stuart, God's sake. I said, I said, the business is growing like crazy in America and Australia. I need to be there. And he said, Mike, shut the F up or, or, or find another mentor. I said, okay, Stuart. So we climbed mountains, uh, and one of the things he taught me there is he said, you're often stressed, Mike. You're running around. He said, what did you learn from that? I said, well, one of the things was stop, breathe, think. When you're going up and you're not getting enough red blood cells, you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain, uh, your body starts to prioritise, okay? And prioritise is your key organs. So you can become increasingly disabled. Uh, but if you stop, all of a sudden, you can take a breath. If you take a breath, you get oxygen then to your brain. If you get oxygen to your brain, 
you can think more clearly and make better decisions. So if you're running around at life, if you're so busy with your business that you can't think, that you can't breathe, stop. Even if it doesn't feel like you have the time to stop, stop, breathe, and think. Ask yourself, am I doing the things that are really making the difference that are going to get me to where I want to be going forward? This was the last moment I did a couple of, um, three years ago in Uganda. We had to have an armed guard because it's on the border of the Congo. And what you don't do is put on social media, I'm going to do this climb, because you're telling people who you are, where you're going to be, when you're going to be there, uh, and they kidnap you. But it wasn't until two days in that the, the guy, we got to know him, and he said, uh, he said you do realise that most often when people are kidnapped, they're kidnapped by their armed guard. <laughs> oh, thanks. Anyway... You know, it's never a straight line. Mountain ranges go up and down, okay? If you look at any mountain range, you're not just going to go like that. But even if it did go like that, you have to climb high, sleep low, climb high, sleep low. You always go a bit higher to fool your body into producing more red blood cells to give you more oxygen, to think more clearly, to have the ability to go forward faster and better. And that's like life. You know, we're never going to go all uphill, Sometimes we're going to go backwards. And I'd say to Stuart, I hated going back. You know, we'd be at this altitude and I'd have to go back. He said, why is that? I said, well, sometimes it made us sleep lower. Sometimes the drain went backwards. I just hate going backwards. He said, Mike, why do you always use negative language? He said, you're not going backwards. You're, you're going to a place where you can consolidate, where you can get energised, where you can replan and think more clearly to get the next climb. And that, I started to look back at my life and see the homelessness and see the bankruptcy and see the challenges as this consolidation period that would give me more strength, ability and clarity of mind to move to the next peak. And this, uh, was, uh, this was on Kilimanjaro, it's about 5,000 metres. It's, it's the night before you, you get there about 4 o'clock and normally you're, you're going to try and get some sleep because you're going to start climbing again at midnight. And you're going to climb at midnight so that you can get up there to see the sunrise, which is absolutely spectacular. You're cold, you're tired. And just as we were packing up here, I was looking across. We're above the clouds, and it was beautiful. But then I looked, and I saw in the, in the background, this is Meru, which is a sister mountain to Kilimanjaro. And Stuart had told me to do that first uh, four years before. I summited Kilimanjaro in a similar way. It's just under 5,000 metres. Uh, and I was about 20 metres down, and I fell. I broke my fibula and tibia and had to be carried off the mountain. Uh, we were going to go on. We were going to do Meru as a practice climb, and then we were going to go on to do Kili. And I couldn't do Kili because I had to get, go home, uh, and it took me a few months to get over uh, the rehabilitation to, to walk again and, and get back to normal. But I never failed to do Kili on that climb. And, and the language that Stuart had taught me was all about that. He said, Mike, you've only failed when you stop. Unlock your path to success with Success is a System, the podcast that guides you through proven strategies and expert insights. Join us every fortnight as we break down the systems behind success. Subscribe now for your fortnightly dose of inspiration and practical tips. Success is not just a dream, it's a system. Tune in and transform your journey. Visit www.mikegreen.co.uk for more info. Success is a system where dreams meet strategy. Failure is not a destination, it is an event on the journey. And the only time you become a failure is if you choose to stay there. If you're going through hell, keep the hell going. Don't stop in that failure. And so I was always going to go back and do Kilimanjaro at a later point. Now, I looked back and I just knew, yep, we're going to do it. Tomorrow morning, 
I'm hitting that summit. But this time, as a reward for a couple of my team, I took four of my team members with me as, as a reward. I'm not sure they saw it as a reward. And in this particular photo, we've got Katie and Andy here. They literally can't breathe. And they're only about, in altitude, 100 meters from the summit of Kilimanjaro. And they say, I'm like, we just can't make it. You know, I, we're nearly there. And so, because it's quite flat on the top. So we've sort of done it. I said, are you fucking kidding? Nearly there? I don't want you to be nearly there. I want you to be really there. Because the difference between nearly and really is life-changing. Knowing that you nearly did it, but then you then gave up, versus you really did it, and you did something that less than 1% of the planet will ever do, is life-changing. And so we keep moving. We don't give up. And this is them just sitting off one step at a time. That last bit, it, it's enough to make you want to cry when you get there. But all that pain, just a few minutes later, look, we didn't even have enough, uh, one of our sponsors, my, my business, HRM, we didn't have enough puff between three of us to blow up that um, little, little ball there. But look at the smiles. But more importantly, and I, I realise now it's not a good strategy for the people who you employ, because Katie went on to set up her own consultancy called Cam Media. It's a fantastic business in the UK. Andy ended up running China for Dunhumby, which is a big uh, research business as well. It changed their lives. When you achieve something that you don't think you can achieve, that people say you can't achieve, that every logical part of you and society says you shouldn't achieve or shouldn't try, it's stupid, it changes you in a way that you would never believe. The mind, unlike an elastic band, when stretched, can never regain its original dimensions. Once you know this, you will never be the same again. So then Stuart told me to go to Hawaii and walk 50 foot on burning coals and to climb this pole and jump because it, he said, climbing the pole, I said, what, what's that for? It's eight inches on the top and quite a big place. Uh, got, climbing up is easy enough, but when you get there, you've got to kind of pull yourself up on top. And every step is about leaving behind a limiting belief. You know, I was too poor. I was too stupid. I was too short. I was too fat. All of these things, every step. What's a limiting belief that could hold me back? And then you jump for the trapeze, leaving all those limiting beliefs behind towards a new future. What are the limiting beliefs that are holding you back? What would be the new future that you would jump to? So that's all about the psychology. And, you know, all of that is just a decision away. It's letting go of those limiting beliefs. But then to build a business, we have to build that with people. There is no billion-pound business that has no employees. You need people. And you need a team. And you need the team that will support you, that will be there for you, that will overcome your challenges, your weaknesses, uh, and so on. And so what I want to share with you is some of that... Winning teams, and we spend a lot of time, and I've been speaking to Richie about doing some stuff on it in the coming 12 months, winning teams only have the best players. Everyone has a shot at it, but we've got to make a choice for the best players. How many people in the room employ people? Okay. So let's say you have 10 employees. If I said to you today, if you don't dismiss one of them before the end of the day, your business is going to go bankrupt. In the time it took me to say that, you know which one that is. Is that fair? Okay. If you know it that quickly, why the hell are you employing them? <laughs> I mean, seriously, we're, we're employing people who we know are not the best. Now, everyone in, there, in your business, therefore, is an anchor or a propeller. There's no grey area. 
they're anchoring you back and your business back, or they're a propeller. Doesn't mean they're not nice people. Doesn't mean they don't have the potential to be good. But if you're a small business, you've got to really say to yourself, am I keeping them for the right reasons? Do I need them? Are they really going to get me where, where I need to be? And, you know, sometimes our inspiration can come from our children. Yesterday, my oldest daughter uh, got a distinction, of, from a master's distinction, I don't even know the proper name because I never went to uni, but uh, for cognitive neuroscience, uh, and she'd already got a first in, um, in psychology. But when she was seven, I was about to go off and do a conference, a bit like this, but to two and a half thousand est- uh, travel agents in Portugal. And um, I said to Jules, my wife, I said, Jules, I'm going to stay at home tomorrow because uh, the next day I was going to be flying off and I haven't even met the presentation yet. Uh, and she said, yeah, fine, I'm going to say, work at home, I need some peace. And literally, we got two kids by then, Amelia as well, and uh, Rosie suddenly isn't well. And Jules says, Mike, I'm taking Amelia to school, um, you need to look after Rosie. I said, Jules, I've told you, I'm speaking to two and a half thousand travel agents, I haven't even started the presentation, I need to get the presentation done. She said, deal with it, Mike, I'm going. And I thought... I needed a tough person with me. I love a tough person. And the best people that, to, to help us are the people who make us do what we need to do. Anyway, typical true-to-form like most kids. Five minutes after Jules has left, Rosie's in there. Can we play, Dad? I said, Rosie, I thought you weren't well. Oh, well, I feel a bit better now. And I said, Rosie, I've got to do this presentation. And I've got all these magazines of what's current and going on in the, in the travel sector. And so I thought, oh, no. I've ripped this page out. And... Uh, I tore it into lots of places, not proud of it. And I said, look, Daddy's really busy, but if you can... I'll give us some sellotape. If you can put this back together, when you've put this back together, like a jigsaw, I'll come and play with you. I thought, it's great, she'll be ours. Uh, I'm not kidding you, within 10 minutes, it's no surprise she's a cognitive neuroscientist, she came back, um, I'd torn it up, she came back and it was stuck together. And I said, Rosie, that's like incredible. How did you do that so quickly? And she said... It was easy, Dad. There were people on the back, and when I got the people right, (laughs) the world was all right. And, you know, not only did that blow me away that a little seven-year-old could teach me this, could reconnect me to this, but it gave me my clothes for that conference, that when you get the people right, the world will be right. When you get the right people in your business and you get those people right, your world will be okay. And and that's really important. And... when I was, with, I was with Charlie Mullins just Monday, and he said it again. He said, Mike, you can't build business without people. He was a plumber, 15 years old, no education in London, Pimlico Plumbers. He sold last year for 146 million. And it's just a plumber, he says. And we're sitting there chatting, and he was talking about, we're talking about apprenticeships and education and the importance of all of that. And he said, Mike, you can't do it without people. You've got to employ people. I know they're a pain in the arse, but when you get to know them, you get to understand what their needs are, how their needs marry to your needs, how you can work as a team, you can change the world. Uh, and so I want to give you three different... Um, management styles that all work by the way it's not about finding one system and you've got to do that system it's finding the system that you can work with that works for you but the first one is jack welsh you used to call him neutron jack every year he said you have to fire the bottom 10 percent of the business he employed 440,000 people so that's a big number and if any manager wasn't willing to do that they were probably one of the 10% that were going. Now, people might say, that's terrible, that's awful. But if ever you heard him speak, what he would say is, if you can think about them in the time you thought about who you would sack, like in a seconds, 
You're never going to respect them. They're not going to be part of your senior team. You're only hanging on to them, abusing them, exploiting them until the right person comes along that you can change them out for. If you think of them as the bottom 10%, set them free to be amazing somewhere else. Uh, and he said, make sure you pay them more than is the statutory to do that. Okay, but people might say, yeah, but it's still nasty, Mike. It's not good for business. Uh, and you can see the numbers here. He reduced the headcount from 440,000 to 310. But in that time, he grew the company uh, from 25 billion to 125 billion. Profit was 405 million. He grew it to 33 billion. And incredible guy. So, you know, if you read his books or see some of the videos he's done, amazing. But that's easy to hire and fire and just let people go. This is a different example. Michael Abrashoff, Turn Your Ship Around. And I spoke with Michael in South Carolina. We were doing a conference tour. And he was an American naval um, com commander. And he had the worst ship in the Navy when he started. And he ended up with the best ship in the Navy. And he said, the problem is, if you've got 900 people on a, on a um, ship for a tour of duty, what are you going to do three days in if you decide they're not right? You're going to throw them overboard? So once you've got them, everyone wants to do a good job. If you can find out why they came to you in the first place, why they wanted to do that job in the first place, what their dreams are, what their hopes are, and you can find a way to marry that if you've got the time. I mean, the challenge is if you're only employing a handful of people, you, it's hard to carry people or, or to, to have the money to invest in the ones that aren't quite there yet. But it definitely worked, and it worked for him, and his story is worth, is worth looking into. Another guy, when I was in retail, I used to do some tours with Kip Tyndall, container store. 20 years in a row, he got double-digit growth. Was voted the best company to work for in America three years in a row. And we were talking about retail, and retail generally, food and drink retail, you spend about 10% of your retail sales on labor. And um, Kip Tyndall uh, used to pay twice the going rate of, of salary. But because he paid twice the going rate, he only had the best people. Okay, And he spent lots on training them. And one of the people in the audience, when it was a Q&A, said to him, how can you pay twice as much and still make any money? We pay 10%, and if we paid much more, we wouldn't be able to make any money. And he said, you're getting it all wrong. I still only pay 10%. But how can that be? You're paying twice as much per person, but you're only, it only adds up to 10% of your turnover. Yeah. And he said, because great people. So just as you thought of the person you might let go, think about the person who's best in your business. Great people are at least three times as effective as the average people, or at least three times as effective as, uh, uh, as the poor workers. How many average people are you employing? And often the sad thing is you're spending more time with the nags than you are the thoroughbreds because the thoroughbreds look after themselves. And you know, understanding people investing in people, helping people, but recognizing that unless you're a charity, and even then, did a lot with charities, uh, if you've got someone even front in a charity that's got a face like they're sucking on a pickle, they're probably not gonna raise much funds. So you perhaps have to think about where you put them in the business, and so on. So develop a process that is simple. How do you attract, train, motivate, and retain the best people? And you should spend some time thinking about these areas. Why would they come and work for you? Would you work for you? Do you know 74% of the businesses in the UK, 4.4 million of them, and I'm sure it's the same here, have zero employees. They're a technician, they're, they're a dentist, they're a plumber. They're just a one-person business. And part of that is because they're scared to employ people. 
And so in effect, they're self-employed, but they're the worst employer they'll ever have. They make themselves work 70 or 80 hours. They make themselves answer the calls every day of the week. They've got stress, they don't get sick pay, they don't get holiday pay, because if they're not working, they're not earning. Why would someone else come and work for you if that's the kind of environment you've created? So how are you gonna attract those people? How are you gonna motivate them are you going to invest in training? And I remember one retailer saying to me, Mike, I'm sick of training people because I spend so much money on training them and then they leave. I said, what if you don't spend any money on training them and they stay? Your business will be as good as the people in that. But also, then we move on to who you spend time with. It's lonely at the top sometimes. We can't tell the, the team that we're struggling, that we, we don't know how we're going to pay next, next month's payroll. We don't want to go home to our family and tell them that we're struggling and we're not sure how the business is going to go because we want to overburden them. So it's a really lonely business sometimes. So you need to surround yourself with a pack of people. And you are, and Jim Ron said this, and I believe it's absolutely as true today as it's ever been, the average of the five people you spend most time with. The average income, the average health, the average wealth, the average happiness. You're the average of the five people. If you're mixing with drug addicts, there's a good chance if you're the fifth one, you'll become the fifth drug addict. If you're mixing with millionaires, there's a good chance that you might be the fifth or sixth one. Look at who you spend time with. Now, this was a really hard decision for me. You know, one of my brothers we used to tour with a prodigy. He was a street, uh, a street fighter. My sister didn't know that she had bipolar and she stabbed a guy, got nine years in prison. And so violence was a place to go to for my family. I don't know why, but when I was at school, I just thought the head was better than, 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 than the fists, maybe because my stepdad saw me as a bit of a punch bag, and that, that was good for him, but it didn't work for me. So I didn't want to be that. I wanted to kind of work with how I could improve myself, what I could do mentally, verbally, rather than physically. But I knew that if I spent too much time around my family when I was building my business, I could never build my business. But you know what? When I could, So I didn't totally disassociate, but I reduced the amount of time I was in that environment. I controlled the environment as much as I could, but it meant I could go back and help them all out in different ways as I became more successful and more able to do that. The five people you spend most time with, your pack, your tribe, your friends, uh, will be your average life. Conscious of time, so I'm gonna whiz through some of this. You've gotta pitch your business. If we meet later in there and I say to you, pitch me your business in 30 seconds, what would you say to me? Most people, oh no, can we have an hour to sit down? I'd love to meet with you for an hour. This is Rosie Jolly. I was speaking in New York at the Waldorf Astoria. The Grand Ballroom is on the fifth floor. I'd said to Nisa, who asked me to speak, I can literally fly in the night before. I'm going to have to leave by lunchtime. So can I be on in the morning? And they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, Mike. And literally, I finished, I got off stage, grabbed my bag. And as I was walking to the door, this lady came up to me and said, Mike, um, can I walk you to the elevator and show you where the taxis are? Now, I thought it was great because it's, it's a big hotel and it's on the fifth floor. Uh, and as the elevator shut on the fifth floor, she said, my name's Rosie Jolly. I work for a company called Propercorn. Cassie and Ryan have set this up and they believe it's the best popcorn company in the world. They're so dedicated to the quality that they used, when they first set up and tried it, they used a cement mixer and a car paint sprayer to spray the finest flavorings on it. And we think that it's the best popcorn in the world. If you think the same and would want to work with us to help us get into retail, we'd really appreciate your help. Here's a couple of flavors. Enjoy your flight back and give us a call if you can help. Bing, the door's open. That's an elevator pitch. Okay, 
And what would be your pitch? You've got to be able to get it out in 30 seconds. Exactly what do you do? Why is it better than what other people do? And why should they want to work with you and leave who they're currently using? Part of it, and part of the reason most people fail, is they haven't got a map, they haven't got a plan, they haven't set goals, they don't know what they want to be or where they want to be. And often they'll say, I just want to be successful. I want to make a million pounds. Or I want to run a marathon. But they don't, they don't get specific. I want to run a marathon this year. I want a million pound profit by November. Um, and what, what I talk about is you've got to be really specific. It's like a sat-nav. If I want to go north in England, that could be Newcastle, that could be Dundee, that could be uh, Aberdeen. But if I just say north, I could go one mile north and I'm successful. If I say Scotland, it's a big country. If I say Edinburgh, it's still a big city. But if I can get EH129AB and put it into a postcode, within seconds, that route has worked out for me. And if we hit a roadblock, we can work a route around that. And even when people do get a map, their problem isn't that they don't know what the map is, it's that they get diverted. If the sat-nav said turn right at the next, le- at the next junction, and you, t- right even, and you turned left, you'd get in the wrong place. But in business, we're doing this, we're doing this, this is what's important to get to where we need to go. Oh, property's a good investment. Oh, um, Bitcoin, I've heard. Get a map, be specific, set a goal. My speciality is one-page strategic mapping. What's your current state? Where are you today? What's your future state? Where do you want to be? What are the areas we need to work on to get there? And what are the actions that are key in each area? One page, three years. I've helped people go from nothing to 20 million pounds in three years by following that kind of mapping. But it comes from me having a mentor who was tough with me. And sometimes people say, why do I need a mentor? Let's think David Beckham. When he was Sunday League... He was a good player already, but he had a manager, a mentor, a coach. He then moved on to a different league. He left those behind. Were they bad? No, they were brilliant. They got him exactly where he needed to be. But then when he moved up, he needed a different manager, mentor, coach. And today, he will still have mentors, coaches, and managers for his business interests and his life. The best people in the world at what they do, whether they're presidents or first-class people or Olympians, will have mentors, coaches and managers and if you've not got someone who can see what you're not seeing who can give you the encouragement maybe even bully you a little bit you're probably not moving forward at the pace that you could or should have you even got a plan and people say yeah it's in my head I say okay that's good what if your sugar levels drop it's not in your head anymore what if your sugar levels go through the roof it's not in your head anymore what if you get drunk what if someone cuts you up on the way to work you forget all of that get it written down set a date And so this one-page strategic mapping is something I'll be working with Richie and the business on to help people just... It is that simple. It is not easy, but it is that simple. It really is. And I just want to end with a few points that really you should ask yourself, what's stopping you? And if you think that you are come from a bad background, find a new tribe. Mix with different people. If you think that you didn't have the right education, let me tell you, 80% of billionaires never went to university. If you didn't learn what you needed to learn when you were at school, then your real schooling starts when you leave school. And every single day, what are you going to do differently? What do you need to learn? If you really can't grasp it, who can you employ that can do it? People from my background, where I live, can't achieve that. 
Well, move. You are not a tree. You don't have roots. You have legs. Get up and walk and go somewhere else. If you believe that you were bullied by your stepfather, then show him the best revenge is success. If you were um, told that you were too short, too fat, too stupid, then change those things. You can't change the height, but you can become much bigger, much stronger, just because of what your aura, your belief, your success achieves. I will tell you now, you are perfectly imperfect, just as you are. You can achieve anything you want to achieve, but you've got to set a goal, make a plan, and get out and do the work necessary to deliver that plan. I wish you outstanding success. Thank you very much.